Hi, I'm Steve Clemens, and I have a question. As the U.S. and global struggle over vaccinations continues, where do we stand in the fight against the coronavirus? Let's get to the bottom line. The debate over vaccines and masks rages on in the United States for a second year in a row. Some folks still argue that the pandemic doesn't even exist or that their personal freedoms trump the public health scare. These days, the stakes really couldn't be higher. More than 50 million American students are headed back to school for the first time since the outbreak of the pandemic. It comes at a time when the more infectious Delta variant is spreading throughout the world, and it's affecting even those who are fully vaccinated. More people are getting their shots as, sadly, the number of hospitalizations from COVID-19 rises, and more and more employers are now forcing their staff to show proof of vaccination. Even the Department of Defense has now issued a statement requiring all servicemen and women to be vaccinated. That wasn't the case until the U.S. Food and Drug Administration gave its official approval to the Pfizer vaccine. So is it possible for the number of vaccinated Americans to rise from around 50 percent to 75 percent or more soon? And does that get the country to a safer place? And what do we do to support vaccination efforts around the globe? Today, we're talking to Dr. Tom Frieden, one of the world's leading public health experts. Dr. Frieden is the former director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and is now the CEO of a five-year initiative called Resolve to Save Lives. Dr. Frieden, thanks so much for joining us today. Let me ask you to just sort of help our viewers to understand, from your perspective, given where we were, you know, 18 months ago plus, what has gone really well in this effort against uh, this pandemic? And what are the parts that we really need to focus on that have not gone well? And I want you to include not just America, but the rest of the world. Well, one thing that's gone well is that we've learned a lot more about the virus. And you know the old saying, know your enemy. The virus is the enemy here. And the more we understand it, the better we can fight it. We also have remarkably effective vaccines, especially the mRNA vaccines, but several of the other vaccines as well. This is a stunning success of science. On the other hand, we have real opposition to implementing the two most effective tools that we have, which are masks and vaccines. And that opposition or the barriers there include both the, the narrative as well as the, the politics and economics. So what we've got is a, a deadly enemy, the Delta variant of the coronavirus with the real possibility that future variants will be even more dangerous, even more infectious, more deadly, or better at getting around our vaccine-induced immunity. What we have to do is recognize that the safer we all are, the safer we all are. And it does require us working together. There was a very powerful piece today uh, describing uh, the, the strong sense of uh, uh, people not wanting to get vaccinated because they're concerned about their own freedom. But I think what we have to recognize is that each of our freedoms does depend on all of us doing certain things together. And in the case of COVID, that means masking up when the virus is spreading and getting vaccinated whenever that's possible and making vaccination much more accessible globally. We are really going through, Steve, a shocking time of unacceptable lack of access to effective vaccines in Africa and many other parts of the world. This is shameful, and we need to do much more to address it. Should we have done better in terms of communicating this? We had masks on, then masks off, now masks back on, and it's hard for a public. Well, I think the, the plain fact is 
that our two most powerful tools, masks and vaccines, have themselves been infected with toxic partisanship. And that makes them weaker. Uh, I hope we can get past that. And Steve, what I hoped would really bring that on was the start of the school year, and yet the opposite has happened. We've seen governors prohibiting school districts from protecting their teachers and students. And to me, that's really putting politics above our kids. For the groups that are uh, anti-vax, anti-mask, anti-science, they're basically pro-virus. And that's anti-child. That means that our kids are going to have a much harder time getting back to school, staying in school, learning in school. And if there's anything we learned from last year's experience with virtual learning for school kids, it doesn't work very well. And it really makes what are already unacceptable inequalities in our educational system even worse. You know, I sometimes refer to this, and I somewhat say it facetiously, but I almost mean it seriously, that while we see breathtaking technological advances in science, and it is really miraculous in many ways that we have vaccine options, real vaccine options, in a historically short period of time dealing with a terrible, awful, horrible pandemic, as you call the real enemy. At the same time, if Galileo were alive today, I feel like he might be found guilty in many parts of the world and particularly many parts of America. What are we not doing to somehow create a greater sense of trust in areas about science and about the fact that science is actually, and public health, are saving people's lives. Um, how do we make that deal better understood? I'd say, Steve, there are short, medium, and long-term things that we need to do differently. In the short term, we need to find the messengers and the messages that really work, that resonate, whether that's the local doctor or the local mayor or someone in the community who is uh, prominent or sports or social figures, that's going to be different in different communities. And the message is going to be different in different communities. In some places, it'll be about protecting yourself and your relatives. In some places, it'll be about doing what's responsible. There's not a question of freedom versus vaccine. The more we're vaccinated, the more we control the virus, the freer we'll all be. So that's the short term. In the medium term, we have to recognize that Trust is the one thing that cannot be surged in in an emergency. And some of the trust in public health in CDC was broken over the past year and a half. And that's going to take a while to re-strengthen, to regain. And that means going back to the basics. Be first, be right, be credible. Be empathetic, listen, because communication has to be two-way, and give people practical, concrete, proven things they can do. In the longer term, I think we need to increase the understanding of the scientific method, of scientific knowledge, of what it takes to, to uh, prove things. And every time we speak, whether it's short, medium, or long-term, always be upfront. Here's what we know, here's how we know it. Here's what we don't know, here's what we're doing to try to figure that out. What has broken down with the global distribution of vaccines that are out there, many of which are, are, are produced in Europe, like the BioNTech Pfizer vaccine, has a big European uh, anchor in it, and yet you even hear from European nations about dissatisfaction with the way the United States has behaved, um, and they call us vaccine nationalists. Well, I think what you're seeing is that vaccine nationalism is both politically inevitable and ethically uh, uh, indefensible. And the only way out of that is to make more vaccine faster. 
there are several different types of vaccines. Uh, most of them that are being produced, like the AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson Janssen vaccine, are what are called biological vaccines. That means they have to grow in very careful conditions. That means a lot of things can go wrong with them, and it's very hard to scale them up and to transfer that technology. A second type of vaccine is the Novavax type of vaccine. That's a more reliable production because it's essentially a chemical process. Uh, there is an adjuvant that's included, and the vaccine doesn't look like it's as ro robust against some of the variants. And then you've got the mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna. These vaccines are highly effective. It's now pretty clear that two doses may not be sufficient, so we may need a three-dose series. There are other vaccines that are given doses at zero, one, and six months. We'll see. We're still learning more about that. But there's not nearly enough. We are billions and billions of doses short. So when the U.S. says, oh, we're going to give a half a billion doses, that sounds great until you realize two things. First, we need about 10 times that much. Second, we need it now, not a year from now. So I think there is a route forward here. Uh, I wrote about this uh, back in the very first days of March. Um, there's a way to go to Moderna, which the U.S. taxpayers paid for the development of. The NIH created the intellectual property and say, you're doing a great job, but you're a small company. Let's transfer that technology to vaccine production hubs in the U.S. and multiple parts of the world, and let's make billions of doses fast. And let's compensate you. You can get royalties for the vaccines that you wouldn't have sold anyway. You can be indemnified if something goes wrong with some of the vaccines that are made under your license and with that agreement. And you can actually gain from any of the tweaks that other companies and hubs make in the manufacturing process. That can be your intellectual property. We don't want to steal anything from you, but we just can't let the world be held hostage to two companies that are really holding the key to our most likely way to get past this pandemic. I mean, Moderna, uh, as you said, has been highly successful. Um, its stock right now is over $400 a share, having surged over the last year from just you know, may, I, I don't know where it was, but it was in the single digits. Uh, its market cap is about $160 billion. You have a huge firm based on this. And, and, and I think people forget that there is a public um, uh, interest element built into, embedded into Moderna's success. Has there been any reaction? Have any legislators, has the White House jumped on your idea to say, hey, this is what we need to do for the rest of the world? And we American taxpayers, by the way, are vulnerable if people around the world ha continue to suffer from this pandemic. It will come back in new variants, in new forms to get us uh, as well. Ha has anyone jumped on your proposal? Well, your point is, is really essential, that this isn't just about doing the right thing and saving millions of lives. It's also about protecting ourselves, because as long as there is uncontrolled spread anywhere in the world, variants even more dangerous than Delta could arise, spread, and come back to haunt us. Um, so I hope there will be motion. You've got the U.N. General Assembly happening next month in New York, at least virtually. And uh, there's nothing like a deadline to focus the mind. This has been dragging on for too long. There's an old saying, uh, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is today. And yeah, I wish we had started this seven, eight months ago, and many of us called for it. But the next best time is right now. 
whether it takes three months or six months or nine months to scale up new manufacturing capacities. And that's a reasonable time frame for many of the facilities out there. Let's start right now because the pandemic is with us for a while. Tom, I want to uh, play for you a clip to go back to the politics of this, which I think are so important in this country, from President Trump. Let's listen. I believe totally in your freedoms. I do. You got to do what you have to do. But I recommend take the vaccines. I did it. It's good. Take the vaccines. But you got, no, that's okay. That's all right. You got your freedoms. But I happen to take the vaccine. If it doesn't work, you'll be the first to know, okay? I guess, you know, from my particular perspective, I was very pleased to see President Trump say, take the vaccines. He's done this. But I'm just interested, again, to bring on, you know, this, this question of responsible stewardship in the country, you know, bipartisan Republicans and Democrats beginning to come out together. Beginning to Are there opportunities that you see? Because you understand the political dimensions of this as well as the scientific ones. And at least President Trump, to give him credit, stepped forward to do this. The audience is there. But it just made me think, you know, is this an opportunity? Like we used to see President Clinton and President George Bush out there working together. Are there things that we're not doing uh, to try to convince an American public that the stakes are very high in this? Uh, interestingly, I've been in several of the focus group that Frank Luntz and the DuBomont Foundation convened. And this is groups of strongly pro-Trump uh, people who are not interested in getting a vaccine, but not strongly anti-vax. And what they told us loud and clear is, we don't want to hear from any politicians, not from former President Trump, not from President Biden, not from anyone. We want to hear from our own doctor. We want to hear from our neighbors. We want to hear from others. And I think, realistically, if you look at what's happening, there's an increasing recognition of the importance of masks and of vaccination. And there's an increasing recognition of the value of mandates for masks indoors and for vaccination in certain settings. And you're going to see that, whether it's Tyson Foods or many universities or other places. Um, the news media will always play up the controversy. But the fact is, there is a very strong uh, majority, strong majority of the American people who are in favor of mask mandates indoors and vaccine mandates, certainly for people such as healthcare workers who could really endanger their patients if they don't get vaccinated. That's not to say there's unanimity. There's not. There's still a lot of people with a lot of questions. And it's important that we address those questions. The move of the FDA to fully approve the Pfizer vaccine, and soon the Moderna vaccine will have the same approval, I'm confident. It's just a matter of more time passing since Pfizer was uh, approved a little sooner. Uh, that's going to help also. It'll make it easier for some institutions to mandate uh, vaccination, and it'll make it uh, more palatable for some people to get vaccinated. I want our audience to hear from you about something I found on your, your um, website, Resolve to Save Lives, that I hadn't heard framed the way you and your team have framed it. And it's about the consequences of long COVID. Many, many people think you can get COVID and, and most people will be fine. They will be okay. They will not suffer effects. But you talked about and said, not so fast. Can you tell us a little bit about long COVID and your concerns? There's still way too much we don't know about long COVID, but we do know that it's quite common and that it can be very disabling. It can affect everything from someone's ability to uh, breathe freely, 
to think clearly, to smell and taste, to be able to do the things they loved doing before. And interestingly and sadly, that's not just about people who are really sick in an intensive care unit. That's certainly uh, something that takes many, many months or even years to get over. Even people who had very few or no symptoms are sometimes having long-term health problems from so-called long haul or long COVID. We need to learn more about how to treat people who are suffering with that. But we also need to recognize that even though lots of people have COVID and it's minor, they get over it, they had no symptoms. Yes, that's common. But unfortunately, having long-term health problems from COVID is also all too common. One of the other uh, things I've been thinking about, particularly with regards to the public health work you do globally, is this question of how good America's public health infrastructure really is. We're clearly a rich nation. We clearly have more vaccines than we want to consume while they sit and wither on the vine when others want them. But when it comes to public health infrastructure, I really don't know how we rank next to other you know, countries that may take the challenge more seriously. And I've also seen you invest in places like the Philippines, Nepal, Nigeria, other places in the world where you're trying to set up, not just deal with COVID, but realizing that, that you know, there may be other dimensions of public health that help raise that system up in, in its totality. And that maybe just single shotting, you know, a single problem is the wrong way to think about it. Can you, can you help our audience understand how we ought to be framing public health questions and where America is the scaffolding of that? Well, let's be clear. The U.S. is a negative outlier. We spend way more than any other country in the world per capita on healthcare. And compared to other high-income countries, people live much shorter lives with much more disability. If we look at the best practices from around the world, you see strong public health systems getting more value for healthcare dollars, saving lives. Uh, there was an article that just came out today in the New Yorker describing by Atul Gawande, describing the Costa Rican health system. Uh, Costa Ricans have a longer average life expectancy than Americans, despite being a much poorer country. And one of the things that works well there is they have a real uh, coalition between health and public health to address the health of entire communities. One thing we find in every country is that every community has strengths and weaknesses. And the challenge to stopping epidemics is identifying and enlisting the strengths and identifying and addressing the weaknesses. Do you think, as we sit and begin to consider other variants, I've now been reading about the Lambda variant, maybe I, you have thoughts on that, but, but when we begin dealing not with COVID, but I've talked with other Americans, well, you know, Dr. Fauci, uh, former Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist, uh, who is himself a doctor, and there was a lot of concern before this pandemic hit that a pandemic would hit. I'm just wondering, what is your worst nightmare on top of that as you look forward? Well, um, COVID is bad, but it's not the worst that nature could deal us. Either a more dangerous variant or a really bad flu or some other respiratory virus or, or even a tick-borne infection that is deadly could cause huge problems. On average, science discovers one new organism per year. Some of those organisms are deadly, Zika, for example, causing birth defects. Some of those organisms uh, are very localized and don't spread. But we know that the next pandemic is inevitable. What's not inevitable is that we continue to be so woefully underprepared. 
And in order to address that better, we need to do a couple of things. First, in the US, get our own house in order. And that means a renaissance in our public health action. That means accountable progress. That means changing the way we fund public health in the US, because right now uh, it's either panic and then neglect or underfunding long-term. There needs to be a better way to invest in the systems that will protect us from the next health threat. Globally, we need to do a much better job finding, stopping, and preventing health threats. And that's why we at Resolve to Save Lives have proposed what we hope will be a galvanizing global approach called 717, that every single outbreak anywhere in the world would be identified within seven days of its emergence. Within one day, it's reported and investigation and control started. And within seven days, identified objective benchmarks achieved for effective response. And if we're able to do that, we'll have a much safer world and much lower likelihood that something like COVID would be as deadly uh, when the next pandemic inevitably threatens us. That sounds so powerful, uh, Dr. Friedman, and I'm excited to see where that goes and how we do it. But just let me ask you very finally, surely, because we're, we're, we're almost out of time, but what is the state of international cooperation and work on this? When I sort of look at uh, the global scene right now, it's pretty toxic. When you look at China, which is a major stakeholder, there's a lot of tension between China and the United States and Europe. And I would think that things like global pandemics or going to space or dealing with climate change while they are, are, are challenges, they are, they are also opportunities to, to bring the world together. What's the state of global affairs in dealing with some of these things? Well, although you can certainly point to things that are concerning, some of the geopolitical tensions, some of the politicization, some of the sidelining of public health, some of the weaknesses of some of the global health mm. institutions, those are all valid concerns. But in the big picture, I'm optimistic. I think the world is at the most teachable moment we've been at in any of our lifetimes. And we know that if we work together, we can have a much safer world. We're also seeing the kind of investment in public health that we couldn't even imagine just a few years ago. So we've got the resources, potentially. We've got the understanding that collaboration is important. We have many very dedicated individuals and organizations that have track records of success in various areas. We also have many years of effort after the 2014-2016 Ebola epidemic mm. identifying where are the gaps, how do they get closed, how much does it cost to close them. So I think all of the ingredients are there. What we need is <clears throat> persistent, focused efforts to establish uh, a global consensus and a global process and a global set of procedures so that we can achieve, whether it's 717 or some other galvanizing goal, right. so that the world can be a much safer place. Well, Dr. Tom Frieden, president and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives, former director of the CDC, thank you so much for your candid thoughts today. Really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Always a pleasure speaking with you. So what's the bottom line? It may seem a bit absurd to folks around the world, but America is suffering from an abundance of riches right now. It has more than enough vaccines, but a lot of folks still won't take them. Many states are even bribing folks with cash to get the shot. Now, even as most of the world hasn't had a single shot in the arm, the U.S. is pushing a booster shot for its own citizens. The real power of this virus is not only that it undermines our health and kills some people, but it's a virus that can shake up societies and even the international order. 
If rich countries like America don't tend to the health of those who actually want the vaccine and are waiting for it around the world, there's going to be a big price to pay sooner or later. And that's the bottom line.